Hey, good morning. The peace of the Lord be with you. If this is your first time with us, welcome to New Life East at the World Prayer Center. We're going on tour, actually, is what we're going to do. We're going to start following all the other congregations around, you know. We'll be down by Midtown next week and then downtown, Amanity Springs. It's a smart idea, isn't it? So good to have you. This is also, Pastor Rory mentioned this at the top of the service, uh, this is New Life East's third birthday. Can we give God praise for that? Such an honor to be part of this community these last three years. We had uh, a group of volunteers gather together on Thursday night at the Hearth House up in Monument for a time of celebration and thinking about what the Lord has done among us. Which, by the way, if you don't volunteer at New Life East, uh, that's like where all the action happens. Am I right, Colin Stoddard? I mean, that's where like community takes place. So uh, you can volunteer, you can sign up to volunteer after the service. But man, it's been such an honor for us to be part of this journey the last few years. And I said to the group gathered up there on Thursday night that when I think about New Life East, I think about three things. I think about a people of the presence. I think about a people who gather every single Sunday and they are hungry for the presence of God. And Jesus said that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're going to be satisfied. Now, what happens is we bring our hunger before the presence of God and God fills us to such overflowing that other people that are hungry and thirsty, they can come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And so you knew life East, you're a people of the presence. And secondly, you are a steadfast and committed people. Now, I think about our launch three years ago, six weeks later, the world came to an end. We had a little apocalypse there for a minute. And we've hung strong. And I'm looking at this room jammed to the gills with people. And I think about your commitment to being the church in a time when folks are not really committing to much anymore. You guys have stayed steadfast and committed and the Lord is blessing that. And then I think the biggest thing I always think about New Life East is I think this is a people of divine love, consistently manifesting divine love. And all of you are in this room because somebody somewhere along the line extended the hospitality of the Lord to you and you found yourself in this place because of it. And so New Life East to you, this morning, I say with the Apostle Paul, who was writing to the Thessalonians, he said, I know that these things are true about you. Do them more and more. Keep giving yourself to the presence of God. Keep staying committed and keep manifesting divine love. And God's going to keep growing his church. Can I get an amen from somebody? In the book of Matthew chapter 5, this morning, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount across all New Life congregations. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's forming a people for himself. Looking out at the wreckage of society, the chaos of society, he's calling a people together to manifest God's salvation in the world. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, what we'll see is that Jesus touches on all kinds of different issues that deface our humanity. And then he gives us kind of the way of the kingdom that puts our lives back together. And one of the issues that he touches, an issue that defaces our humanity as much as any other issue is the issue of our sexuality. And so in a couple different sections here in the Sermon on the Mount, he addresses it. Now, I know that we only have kids' ministry for zero to five years old, and that six and up are in the room. So parents, I can see the little beads of sweat beginning to form on your foreheads. It's all going to be good, okay? All right. We're not, uh, I'm not going to make any messes for you that you have to clean up later. But last week, we talked about how Jesus saves our sexuality, first of all, by addressing us at the root of who we are. He addresses our desires, that when our desires are going astray, when they're going outside of God's bounds for our lives, then what happens is our lives will go outside of God's bounds and we find ourselves shipwrecked. So we talked about that last week. 
This week, I want to talk about how Jesus saves our sexuality by helping us think clearly about marriage and divorce and also about singleness. And so before we start this morning, I just want to say that uh, I know that we have many divorced and remarried people in the room and that this whole thing about marriage and divorce in the church has been a huge, huge source of shame and condemnation for people. And I just want to say to you this morning, I'm going to state the obvious, but it doesn't go stated enough. Jesus doesn't shame us. Not ever. Not with anything. Even with the hardest things that he gives to us to hear, it's never shame. It's always an invitation to life. And instead of shaming us, what Jesus does is he not only gives us commands that lead to life, but just like with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, that woman who had had five husbands and the woman she, or the man that she was with was not her husband. Jesus just offers her the water of life and says, come and drink. And this morning, that's what he's doing to all of us. And so I'm going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 31 this morning before we open the text together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the great gift of your presence. First of all, my goodness, how you have been present among us this morning feeding us with the bread of life and causing us to drink of the water of life. And so we're standing in this moment where we're getting ready to open the scriptures. We're standing not at a deficit with you, but we're already standing with full hearts and ready hearts. And so we thank you for the gift of your presence. And we also thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who stands in the midst of broken wayward humanity as the teacher saying to us, Walk in this way and you will live. And so we pray that here and now, Jesus, you said that wherever two or three are gathered together in your name, that you'd be there in the midst. So we pray that you'd be here in the midst this morning, speaking to us, helping us, teaching us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Grant this, we ask, we say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right, great. It has been said, Jesus said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Well, what's Jesus doing here in this text? I think that what he's doing is he's taking uh, aim at an on-demand, I'll call it that, an on-demand and deeply unjust divorce culture that was prevalent in the first century. One of the great New Testament scholars of our day, R.T. France, wrote this. He said of this text that divorce in the first century was a purely male prerogative which required no legal hearing at all. It was merely a matter of the husband's decision. And so women, women in just about any century in any culture have always been more vulnerable. In this century, the first century in Jewish culture, they were even more vulnerable. Man didn't even have to stand before the court to get a divorce. If he just wanted to do it, he could do it. One of the schools of rabbis in the first century, the school of Hillel, quote, allowed a man to divorce his wife for such a trivial offense as spoiling a meal or even simply because he had found somebody that he preferred, Man wakes up in the morning and goes, you know, you burned the toast again. You get, we're getting a divorce. But that's what it was like. In fact, one of the uh, great historians of Jewish culture in the first century, uh, Josephus, 
said this in one of his books. He said, at this time, I sent away my wife being displeased with her behavior. And then I took as a wife a woman from Crete. He just happened to be displeased. And so he wrote up the certificate of divorce and he sent her away. It's heartless and it's cold and it's deeply unjust. And so R.T. France remarks this. He says that Jesus' quarrel with the then current ethical teaching was that it was basing its standards on an assumption of failure. Everybody's talking to Jesus about like, well, what do you, what's your opinion about divorce? And Jesus is like, you've already started in the wrong place. You've already started on the assumption that relationships between men and women are not going to work the way that God intends. And so you're going to get, well, the outcome of this is going to be wrong. I was a, um, I was a business, man, uh, business uh, major in college. Any business majors in the room? Uh, yeah. And so accounting classes, you take any accounting classes? Whew. That was a sore trial. Let me tell you, I, uh, I'm glad that there are good accountants in the world, but I hated my accounting classes. And one of the reasons that I hated my accounting classes was because they'd give us these problems that were like 15 to 20 pages long where you had to like see to it that everything was balanced just so. And if you were wrong by like two cents early on in the problem, it would have this cascade effect that would wreck the whole thing. And you'd get to the end and you'd be off by many thousands of dollars, but you couldn't figure out where you went wrong. And it's not that your logic wasn't sound from the moment after you made the the bad choice. It's just that you made the bad choice and therefore your logic was off even if it was sound. Does that make sense? Something like that is what Jesus is doing in his teaching on marriage and divorce. He's trying to like, he's not going to locate his teaching inside the failure. He's going to try to get us back to the beginning, which is what he does in Matthew 19 in his conversation with the Pharisees. Watch this. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, master, is it lawful for us to divorce a wife for any and every reason? They're confirming what the then current ethical teaching was. And Jesus says this, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one. And therefore what God has put together, let no one separate. Well, why then they asked did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus replied, Moses, what does he say? He permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, God marries another woman, commits adultery. Then the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. And notice we're going to say more about this later, but Jesus doesn't refute them on that. He says, not everybody can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given For there are eunuchs who were born that way and eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And those who have chosen to live this way, that is in an unmarried state, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, the one who can accept this word should accept it. Now notice what Jesus does with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law here. They say, why is it that Moses commanded that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus says, oh, the law did not command it. What did the law do? It permitted it. And why is that? Because your hearts were hard. And so what Jesus is pointing out in his teaching is that in trying to mitigate human failure, the law wound up creating an adulterous system. The whole system was broken, according to Jesus. And so, sure, 
you can go around and you can write a certificate of divorce and technically that lives up to the law of Moses. You can get all of your paperwork just right. But that doesn't mean that we've entered into the heart of God for marriage. So I don't think, and I'm going to say this clearly to the divorced folks in the room, but I don't think that Jesus is taking aim at divorced folks individually and going, shame on you, shame on you, shame on you, shame on you. I think he's looking at the whole sexual system that we've built and he's going, this is so far from God's intention. Can we please again get in touch with the heart of God? Again, your paperwork might be in order, but the intent of God for men and women has been frustrated. And so Jesus takes us all the way back to the original will of God for marriage, saying that it wasn't this way in the beginning That in the beginning, what God did is he made the two one flesh and what God has joined together, let no one separate. So I'm going to ask this question. I've asked it a couple times in the last few weeks, but I'm asking it again. Why is it that marriages fail? And married people, you have to hear this. Why do marriages fail? They fail because someone's heart has closed down. Moses didn't command divorce. He permitted it because hearts we're hard. And Mandy and I right now are involved with probably half a dozen couples, some here in Colorado Springs and some around the country, people that we're close to, where their marriage is on the brink. And it's astonishing to us how consistent the storyline is. The presenting issues are different that are driving them apart, but the storyline in its, in, its, in its fundamental reality is the same. Somebody in the relationship is saying, I'm not sure if I'm in love anymore. That's a statement that comes from a heart that's closing down. And Mandy and I are going on 23 years of marriage. And I just want to say to you, if you're in that place this morning with your spouse, that you feel as though your heart is closing down, something is in you, in you is dying. I just want to say to you this morning that we understand that because we have been through that many times over. There have been so many times over the last 23 years where individually we have thought to ourselves, where where even are we with each other? You start getting this feeling like the love is dead. And I, I don't know what to say to you except to say this, that the reason that we have made it is because we have decided to stay in it with each other in spite of our feelings. And we live in a time right now that has enthroned our feelings And so if your feelings are leading you this way, then that means that your life needs to go this way. If your feelings are leading you that way, then it means that your life needs to go that way. And that, I've said this before and I'll say it again, that's not the way that Christians think about how we behave. What Christians do is Christians make commitments to things. They live inside commitments to things. And so even when their hearts are betraying them, they make choices with their will under the empowering agency of the Holy Spirit to stay true to the things that they said they were going to do. Do you know what the biblical word for this is? It's covenant. And do you know that God makes covenant with us? And that is how our relationship with God abides through the centuries. When you look at the stormy relationship between God and his people over the centuries, you'll see that there were times that it seemed as though the relationship between God and his people died many times over again. And do you know what God will say? I remember the promise I made to Abraham. 
I remember the promise I made to Isaac. I remember the promise I made to Jacob. I remember the promise I made to Moses. I remember the promise I made to David. I remember the promise, the covenant that I cut with you in Jesus Christ over spilled blood. So it'll be over my dead body that I'm giving up on you. And it's something about, and literally that's what happened in Jesus Christ. And it's something about God's commitment to us elicits our commitment back to God and the relationship finds renewal over and over and over again. The same thing happens in marriage. That's why marriage is the great sacrament. It's telling us something about God's relationship with his people, with his church. And when we stay in it in spite of our feelings, what we experience is a resurrection of our feelings. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great pastor and theologian, The early part of the 20th century said this in a wedding homily that he wrote to his friend, one of his best friends and his niece who were getting married. He said, from now on, it will not be your love that sustains the marriage, but it will be your marriage that sustains the love. Something about the covenant creates a space where the love, even when it's dead as a doornail, can be renewed over and over and over again. And to the married people in the room, I'm imploring you to trust that that is so. And by the way, this is what we signed up for in our baptism. We signed up for a participation in the ongoing mystery of death and resurrection. So if you have places in your life where you die, welcome to the party. You know what's on the other side of death. You know what's on the other side of Golgotha. And what is it? Resurrection. Easter Sunday is coming. And so you can afford to die. You'll know that the spirit of God will make you alive. How do you keep a soft heart in marriage? Three things real quick. One, you stay close to Jesus. It's the only way I know how to do it. You stay close to Jesus because he'll call that hardness of your heart to attention and he'll soften it with his presence and he'll have mercy on you in a way that gives you mercy for the person that you're married to. Dallas Willard said this, that it's psychologically impossible to know the Lord's pity on us and at the same time be hard-hearted towards other people. You receive on a daily basis the pity of the Lord for you and it will soften your heart to your spouse. So stay close to Jesus. Number two, seek each other out. And I don't mean just get in the same physical proximity with one another, though certainly that, but I mean seek out each other's hearts. I talked last week about Mandy and I, weekly dates and daily check-ins with each other. How are you? How are you doing? What's going on? How can I serve you? It will keep your heart soft. So stay close to Jesus and seek each other out. And number three, and I cannot stress this one enough, ask for help early and often. Some of you, your marriage is falling to pieces and you're so ashamed of that fact that you're not talking to anybody And if that happens to you, if your marriage falls apart because you don't talk to anybody, in this church at least, you will have died amidst abundance. You can talk to just about, there are three dozen married couples in this room that I would highly recommend that you talk to. Not to mention an army of counselors and therapists and folks and pastors that would gleefully jump into the pain with you and count it an honor to walk with you. You don't have to walk alone. Seek out help early and often. What about, I'll just ask this real quick, shifting to divorced folks in the room because this needs to be said. What about if you are divorced? Where does all of this leave you? 
Well, I want to say to you that Jesus loves you desperately. And you are the apple of his eye. And you are the bride that he is choosing. And he will never stop choosing you. And you need to know that. And so I'd say that to you. And I'd also say to you that if and when you begin to think about remarriage, because I've walked with a number of divorcees through the process of getting married again, this I'll say to you, because we don't have time to belabor this, but you just make sure that you do all of the work that you need to do, processing all that you were in before, so that when you walk into a new marriage, you walk into it with a clean heart and a clean life. Can you do that? Okay, there's a little bit more to be said here with the few minutes that we have left. One of the things that astonishes me about the teaching of Jesus here in Matthew 19 is that he raises the bar and he refuses to lower it, okay? Doesn't make marriage easier. He doesn't accommodate to us. The disciples said to him in verse 10, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't backpedal. Oh, no, 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 guys. I didn't mean it like that. You know, I can be a little bit intense sometimes, but uh, let me explain to you what I was really saying. He doesn't soften it, doesn't change it, doesn't accommodate it to what the disciples are saying. Instead, he replies in verse 11, not everyone can accept this word, but those to whom it is given. It appears in the teaching of Jesus that marriage is less like something that everybody should do because it's fun and it'll take away loneliness from your life. And it's more like a sacred calling that some people are asked into and other people are not asked into. And I, I just want to say that there are some among the faithful for whom the situation that Jesus is laying out, the situation of marriage, it doesn't quite fit you. Male and female, man and woman for life. I'm thinking of the same sex attracted. I'm thinking of the single person for whom marriage just hasn't happened yet. I'm thinking about the widow or the widower in this room for whom remarriage seems unlikely at whatever stage of life you're in. Or I'm also thinking about those who just don't want to be married. (laughs) And that's a thing too. And I want to say to all of you, whatever your station is in this, that if that's you, we see you. And you need to hear that. But we see you and you belong here. And you are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God because of that. And sometimes in the church we have spoken and we have acted otherwise as though God's highest and best for each person is that they get married and have a bunch of kids and live happily ever after. And I want to say, (laughs) just to point out the obvious here, that we live in a culture that is preoccupied with sex. And I think that one of the problems with the church in our day is that we have just accepted that preoccupation and given it a Jesus angle. Oh, if you decide to follow Jesus, you know, then you'll get married and every bodily desire that you have will live in a 24-7, 365-day-of-the-year bliss. And in that way, wherever and however we've done that, do you know what we've done? We have turned Jesus into a marketing gimmick. So that rather than challenging uh, what the culture is saying about sex and sexuality, we've actually confirmed the culture's unhealthy preoccupation with sex. That's a big problem, ladies and gentlemen. And it's biblically and it's theologically wrongheaded. Remember, Jesus says, not everybody can accept this word, nor should they. And Paul actually says, I wish that all of you were as I am. What is Paul referring to? He's single. 
And Paul, if you read Paul's teaching, Paul, when he talks about marriage, he'll basically be like, you know, if you have to get married, fine. But then he'll say, but I'm trying to spare you a lot of trouble here. You know, it'll be easier for you if you're single, you're focused on Jesus and focused on your work and focused on the church. But if you really need to get married, for Paul, marriage is not the highest and best form of life. It's actually a concession. Paul thought that singleness in the kingdom of God was the best thing that you could do. And the early church continued this, that singleness was valued in the early church as much and sometimes more than marriage. Listen to this. This is the Duke theologian and ethicist, Stanley Hauerwas. He writes, perhaps nothing is more indicative of the unexpected world that Jesus has brought into existence than his suggestion that some of his followers will not marry. In contrast to the family of Israel, the community called into existence by Jesus doesn't grow by biological reproduction, but by witness and conversion. Singleness and celibacy are practices constitutive of the church's witness. That in the same way that marriage serves as a sign of God's commitment to his people, it's a sacrament, so also there's a sense in which singleness is also a sacrament and a sign that it teaches us something about how God grows the church, namely not by biological reproduction, but by the miracle of how the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the church and the witness of the saints falls upon people and they accept Christ Jesus the Lord and they're born again as children of God, not through biological reproduction, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Singleness is a sign just like marriage is a sign and the church needs both of them. Doesn't make it easy. But then again, nothing in discipleship is easy. Jesus says, unless you carry your cross and follow me, you're not, you're not worthy of me. And every calling in the church has crosses in it. There are just different crosses for us to bear. It doesn't make it easy, but it does give it meaning. And it also, I think, puts marrieds and singles together as a total family, which leads me to the last thing that I want to say to all of us here. I think that one of the pressing issues for the church in the 21st century is that we need to reclaim the art of spiritual friendship. Deep and abiding and intimate, satisfying friendships that don't need to be sexual to be that way. We do not know how to do this in our culture anymore, but the Bible is full of examples of this. Think about David and Jonathan in the Old Testament who cut covenant with one another, these two men that were deeply committed. David said of Jonathan, your love to me was better than that of women. It was deep and it was intimate and it was satisfying without being sexual. Or think about Jesus and John, the beloved disciple. John who rested his head against Jesus' chest. He trusted him and loved him so much. Or think about Paul and the younger Timothy. This beautiful, intimate relationship between an older man in the faith and a younger man in the faith that had no trace of sexuality in it or impropriety in it, but was deeply satisfying. The deepest thirst of our lives is for God, friends. But the second deepest thirst of our lives is to know and be known in relationship with other people. And this is a gift that God does not reserve exclusively for married people. Stanley Hauerwas, one more time. He says that if Christians don't have to marry, then surely the church must be a community of friendship that is an alternative to the loneliness of our world. What kind of a people shall we be? A people that privilege one form of life above the other? or people that are so lost in the love of God 
that there are no lonely people among us. I choose the latter. How about you? Yeah? I'm going to need something from you. Yeah. Okay. Let's stand. Prepare our hearts for communion. Can we, friends, now I just want you to lift your hands. Whatever your station, wherever you are, all of us in this room, I am sure that our consciences have been pricked or someplace in our hearts has been spoken to. And I want you just in this moment to let the Spirit minister exactly to that place this morning. I'm not going to lead you to the place. You've already been led there. And so, Spirit, we say, please fall upon every married person in this room. As we have been asking, so we continue to ask for soft hearts. Soft hearts. We pray that you would make soft again what has become hard. Make soft again what has become rigid. Make pliant again what has all of a sudden frozen up. We pray that you would give us the new heart. I'm praying for every divorced person in this room. Oh, I'm praying that the sweet salve of the Holy Spirit would fall upon all of those places that are battered and bruised to all of those places where there is a cloud of shame and guilt and condemnation following them around. We say, be gone in the name of Jesus. Now, I pray that you would fix them firmly in your love this morning. And I pray for every single person in this room who for one reason or another has to bear the call of singleness, I pray that it wouldn't be a cross, but I pray that they would see it as a joy and an opportunity and that they would meet you in it. Because the truth is this, marriage is a sign of the great marriage of God and his people. And our singleness doesn't need to be a death sentence for us, but it can be an invitation into the intimacy of the Lord. And so this morning we pray that you would meet each and every one of us granting us exactly what we need. And we remember before you, Lord Jesus, where on the night that you were betrayed, after you'd given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples. And you said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins, do whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus, we lift up bread and cup before you, you who took our humanity. We pray that you would bless bread and cup this morning, that these things would become for us sacraments of your body and your blood, the means by which we're united again with the body of Jesus who sets us free and saves us and heals us and delivers us. The Jesus who grants each one of us a seat at the table of the Lord. So come, minister life to us, we pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. I'm going to invite our communion servers to come forward and serve communion this morning. We only have two sections rather than the four that we'd normally have at Grand Peak Academy, but it's going to work the same way. You'll exit your row on your right one by one. Come forward and take communion up here and up here, and then you'll go back in on the left-hand side of your row. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.